there are seven different unspoken requests in the heart and mind of patients. And when you analyze the encounter that Jesus had at the well, systematically, Jesus met every one of her unspoken requests. So before Disney ever did the research for Florida Hospital, 2,000 years ago, Jesus ministered and answered those questions. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to John chapter 4. And we're going to compare the methodology of Jesus in John 4 with the unspoken requests of the woman and we're going to take a look at how they apply to the research that's being done today. And then Des is going to come on and share with you how that relates to practice. We begin in John, the fourth chapter. Now, you recall last evening that we noted the expression, and we spent the first 25 minutes on it in John 4, verse 4, Jesus needed to go through Samaria. We pointed out that he did not need to go through Samaria geographically. Neither did he need to go through Samaria because it was the quickest way to Galilee. Neither did he go through Samaria because he divinely knew he was going to meet the woman there. We're not sure about that. He needed to go through Samaria because based on John 3, verse 34, for he whom God sent speaks the words of God, is Jesus had this purpose-driven life. Jesus had this sense that he was sent to Samaria by God. Jesus had this sense inside that the Holy Spirit was leading him to Samaria, and he could not deny that inner conviction of the Spirit. He could not deny that inner leading, that inner prompting of the Spirit. As you and I get up in the morning, what keeps us from burnout in a people profession? What keeps us from exhaustion? What keeps us when the waiting room is full and we're already 30 minutes behind in the schedule? What keeps us from mental, physical, emotional exhaustion? There is one thing that helps to contribute to keeping us from that, and it is this inner sense that we are here by the divine decree of God. It is that inner sense that the work of a physician, the work of a dentist, the work of a healthcare provider is not a profession, but it's a calling. That inner sense of purpose, direction, and calling. Jesus must need go through Samaria. He was divinely summoned. You are divinely summoned for a sacred work. Now let's look at a clinical analysis of Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well and attempt to discover the seven unspoken requests in the part of every patient. John 4, we're looking there beginning at John 4, verse 7. Jesus is sitting by the side of the well. He's wearied. A stranger shows up. We're going to come back and look at verse 6 in the last session of the day intentionally. And in verse 7, it says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, 
give me a drink. Notice the expression Jesus said. Often in the Bible, very short expressions are pregnant and loaded with meaning. The scripture says, and Jesus said. It was not simply what Jesus said, it was the fact that he said. Now think about it. It was not only his content, but it was his comment. And Jesus said. He paid attention to her. He shouldn't have done that. She was a Gentile, a Samaritan. He was a Jew. She was a woman. He was a man. She was a woman of ill repute. He was a religious teacher. And Jesus said, what flowed through her heart when Jesus said something to her? It wasn't only what he said. It was her surprise that he was saying anything at all. He was speaking to her. He was paying attention to her. She was not unknown. He was recognizing her. Jesus noticed her. When your patients are sitting in the waiting room, is anybody paying attention to them? Are they merely a statistic on a daily chart? When they walk in to the inner sanctum of your office and your nurse has them sitting there, do they feel like they're a statistic or a human being? When you come in and you're already seeing 30, 35, 40 patients a day in some disciplines, if you are in other disciplines that I know that will remain unnamed, you may be seeing 90 patients a day. You know who, what discipline you're in. Some of you may do a few surgeries, but others of you may have shorter encounters with patients. How do they feel? Do they feel you notice? that they feel that you come in and say, uh, now, I looked at the chart and this was the problem. You see, remember the Disney study that Des brought out last night. The first thing that, a, that Disney said that a patient longs for is attention. That is exactly what Jesus gave this woman. And Jesus said, he noticed, he paid attention. I'm reminded of that an old country western song that goes like this. I want someone to notice the little things that make me who I am. More than anything, I do not want to be unknown. The refrain haunts me. More than anything, I don't want to be unknown. It's an old country western song. I want somebody to notice the little things that I am. More than anything, I don't want to be unknown. Human beings do not want to be considered to be a cosmic zero. They don't want to be considered a blurb on the radar screen. They don't want to be considered as a non-entity. Jesus did not treat the woman as a patient. He treated her as a person. Jesus did not treat her as a commodity. He treated her as a child of God. In Pierre Solinger's biography of John Kennedy. Solinger, in talking about John Kennedy, makes this interesting observation. He says that Kennedy would get his list of appointments that day. Now, you can imagine the large number of 
people that a president of the United States would have to see. And he said Kennedy would get his large, his list of, of, of people that day that he had to see. And Solinger says in his biography of Kennedy that one of Kennedy's unique abilities was not to say to people when he saw them, you know, I only have a few minutes for you, even if you only had a few minutes, that Kennedy had this ability to focus. And if he spent three minutes with you, it, spent, it felt like he was spending three hours. It is not the quantity of time, it is the quality of the experience. And that Kennedy had this ability to spend five minutes with a person, then simply put his hand on his shoulder or look directly in his eyes and smile and say, you know, this was really an engaging conversation. I appreciate so much the opportunity of spending a little time with you today. Thank you so much. His aide would usher the person out of the room and they would feel like they were walking on air because the president said, what an engaging conversation. The conversation might have been three minutes. It might have been four minutes. The desire of a patient's heart initially before they receive treatment, according to the research, is that somebody pays attention to them. Now, as we continue through this narrative, Jesus proceeds from the attention level, and he makes a request. You'll notice that in the last part of verse 7. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. It appears in the English translation of the text that this is a command, give me to drink. It almost seems a little harsh. It almost seems a little um, direct. The original language places it in a little different context, and the culture places it in a little different context. The original language puts it in the context of a gentle request. It would be more like saying, may I have a drink? It's more like asking for a favor. Ellen White makes quite an um, insightful comment. I'm always amazed at the insightful comments that Ellen White made not knowing the culture, never having traveled to Israel, and not knowing the original language. I wonder why she gets it right all the time. If she never traveled to Israel and she doesn't know the Greek. I mean, how, how, how do you explain that? Those of us who believe in inspiration have no difficulty in explaining it. Those who believe that the writings of Ellen White were a human influence struggle over those questions. But notice, she comments on what Jesus said, and she says, as the woman turned to go away, Jesus asked her for a drink. In other words, he startled her, he noticed her, he paid attention to her. Such a favor no oriental with, with, would withhold. In the East, water was called the gift of God. To offer a drink to a thirsty traveler was held to be such a sacred duty that the Arabs of the desert would go out of the way to perform it. Wow. What is Jesus doing here? He is saying to her, not only do I recognize you, but I respect you. I respect you. He was saying to her, here is common ground. I need a drink of water and I will not allow the prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans to keep me from respecting you enough to ask you for a favor. What is the second great quality in the heart of every patient? What do they long for? First, they want somebody to pay attention to them. Second, they want their hurts and their needs to be respected. 
They want somebody to say, I respect you. I can really understand where you're coming from. I can really understand uh, uh, why this is troubling you. That whole concept of respect. Verse 10, Jesus goes on. And what I want you to see is that there are seven basic steps that the Disney research has discovered. They come in order, and these seven steps are in order in the text of John 4. It's rather amazing to me that when the leading researchers research the attitude of patience, they simply come back to bedrock fundamental eternal principles in Scripture. Let's look at the third great need or the great recognition that Jesus had for this woman. You go to verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked me, and he would have given you living water. What was Jesus saying to her here? What, what's the, the psychological principle? Jesus was saying, I have sympathy for you. You're looking for something more than simply coming to this well and getting a drink of water. You're a woman who is a woman who has a craving in her heart. I sympathize with you. I sense that you're looking for something more. I sense that you have a deep longing in your soul. I sense that there's an emptiness in your heart. I was interested in a rewritten version of the Hippocratic Oath. It was written by the then academic dean of medicine at Tufts University, Louise Lasagna. Um, and he writes a total modern version of the Hippocratic Oath that really uh, harmonizes with the sympathy that Jesus was giving this woman. And he says, here's how he writes it uh, for, for his physicians and for his students, his medical students at, at Tufts. He says, I will apply for the benefit of the sick all the measures that are required avoiding those twin traps of overtreatment and therapeutic nihilism. I will remember there is an art to medicine as well as a science, and that warmth and sympathy and, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife in the chemist's drug. That's on target, isn't it? That's on target. And so what was Jesus saying here? He was saying to the woman, warmly, I'm paying attention to you. Somebody's listening. He was saying to the woman, I respect you. Could I have a drink? He was saying to the woman, I know that you have a deeper longing. I see it in your eyes. It's written on your face. You, I, I sympathize with you. You want something more than the water of this well. I have that sympathy, that compassion for you, your unspoken needs. I love this sentence. I will remember, modern Hippocratic Oath, that there is an art to medicine as well as science. And that warmth and sympathy and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife and the chemist's drug. Medical missionaries in the 21st century recognize that there's something beyond surgery and something beyond the dispensing of drugs to their patients. That there is an element of sympathy, care, and concern. Now, when you look at verses 13 and 14, Jesus himself comes to those passages and he offers the greatest thing that every patient desires. He offers the woman hope. 
verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. So he's saying, I, I have something more for you. Yes, I've noticed you. Yes, I pay attention to you. Yes, I respect you. Yes, I've had sympathy for you. But ma'am, there's something beyond. Madam, there's something beyond. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. What is Jesus saying to her? He is saying to her, your inner longing longs for hope. You want more than five broken relationships. You want more than a life that's emotionally shattered. You want something beyond your guilt, something beyond your shame. I am giving to you hope. May I suggest to you that the heart cry of every one of your patients who come into that office is for hope. That's what their heart cry is. If they have been diagnosed with a coronary artery disease, they long for hope. If they've been diagnosed with a cancerous malignancy, they long for hope. If they come in with a common cold, they long for hope. Whatever they come to you for, there is that inner, inner longing for hope. I know that from a patient's perspective. For 67 years, I don't think I went to a doctor if I could avoid it more than two or three times. I mean, I, I, I was, I mean, if you asked me how long are you going to live, I would have told you at least to a healthy hundred with my friend Des Cummings, and we're going to go beyond that, you know. <laughs> Des is the father of the healthy hundred. And I would have told you at least I'm going to a healthy hundred. Until, as many of you know, I have this freak accident, I break one rib, and then another crazy accident, uh, bending over to plug in my computer and I break another rib and, and pretty soon my general conference physicians make appointments with the top physicians at the University of Maryland and they send me there. And I, and I have rehearsed that um, litany of medical tests so I will not bore you with that again today. But I will tell you, when you sit with a phlebotomist and they draw 16 tubes of blood, you begin to wonder if you have any left. You know, I mean, I've had them draw two or three before, but when they take 16 out of you and you sit there and say, how many more are you going to take? And the phlebotomist says, oh, for today, that's all. <laughs> and I remember sitting with Dr. Hong, major professor at the University of Maryland in internal medicine. And he says, I've analyzed the statistics. And he brings out about seven pieces of paper with all little tiny lines on them, single-spaced, with numbers after every line that I never heard of. And he begins going over seven pages. And I'm sitting there saying, well, now, what's, I want to act halfway intelligent. I've got my tie on. And so I'm looking at him saying, what in the world is this man talking about? Then he explains it and explains it. And he did a great job. And I'm saying, thank God. you know. And he's going on. And I said, I'm concerned about this number. I'm concerned about this number. And after we went through that, I said, well, Doc, what are we going to do? And he said, well, I think I need to send you to the oncologist. And my secretary, my administrative assistant, just made an appointment with the oncologist. And he was very gracious, very kind. And I left his office. And as I was walking along between his office and the oncologist's office, I'm thinking, oncologist, oncologist. What's the now? Oncologist. That's not a gynecologist. That's not what said. <laughs> <laughs> You know, oncologist, I'm thinking, 
pathologist. I know what that means. Not a pathologist. And all of a sudden it hits me. That's a cancer specialist. That, 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 that's where he's sending me? And this fear grips me. I mean, what about my wife? You know, what, what about my kids? Uh, what about those sermons I gotta preach? I mean, what about all those appointments for the next three months? When I walked into the oncologist's office, what did I want more than anything else? I wanted hope. I wanted hope. Now, incidentally, just so you don't get nervous that I'm going to faint halfway through the sermon, I'm doing great. They backed up my diagnosis to a pre-myeloma, not a multiple myeloma, as the oncologist originally anticipated. So I, I'm doing a lot better uh, now. But here is my point. Jesus met a woman, and he sensed the need of her heart was hope. And he said, I will give you, I will give you something beyond what you can possibly imagine. The fifth thing that every patient longs for is the truth. Jesus said to the woman, verse 17, verse 17, patients want truth telling. Verse 17, the woman answered and said to her, said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. What do patients want? They want somebody to pay attention to them. They want to be respected. They want to have sympathy and understanding and compassion. They want to be given hope for their hopelessness encouragement for their despair. But they want to be told the truth. Jesus could have avoided saying anything about her marital or non-marital situation. But Jesus knew that deceiving her and not revealing to her the truth would not be helpful for her ultimate healing. So he told the truth to her. Because he knew that truth-telling often is the the doorway to healing. As you share with your patients the truth about their condition in a gentle, kind, sympathetic, loving way, it prompts them to desire lifestyle change. Now the sixth thing that Jesus did was he made a transition into the spiritual, which is very, very fascinating. You find that in verses 21 to 24. Verse 21 to 24, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you'll neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. She had tried to change the, uh, the, the topic, but Jesus talks about worship. You worship what you don't know. We know that we worship for, sal for the salvation is of the Jews. The hour is coming when the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. It's, a, it's quite of interesting. What does Jesus do? He pays attention to her. He shows her that he respects her. He begins breaking down some barriers by showing sympathy to her. He offers hope for her hopelessness. He then begins sharing with her the truth about herself. That truth about herself causes her to feel this sorrow, this repentance inside. It causes her to make a, a desire to change in her experience. When that takes place, they have this discussion on worship. Now they're talking about the eternal. And then in the seventh part of the narrative, you come and Jesus then offers the ultimate solution. See, the ultimate, the, the ultimate solution must 
certainly deal with the physical needs of your patient. It must certainly deal with the care of the immediate cause of the disease of the patient or the immediate results of the disease. But the ultimate solution is much more than that because here you come to Jesus and he offers the ultimate solution. What is it? Verse 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. In other words, I'm the Messiah. I'm the ultimate solution to your loneliness, the ultimate solution to your guilt, the ultimate solution to your fear, the ultimate solution to the, to the conflict of your heart. What does this narrative say to us today in a 21st century setting? It says seven things. First, it says, however busy you are, whatever the frantic pace of your practice, pay attention to your patients. Consciously, remind yourself to notice them. Secondly, offer respect. Every patient deserves our utmost respect, sympathy, and compassion. Thirdly, show them sympathy. Fourth, be an inspirer of hope. When they have little hope, you must be their hope. Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. Uh, when appropriate, transition to the spiritual and present the ultimate solution of the treatment that you will give them in the context of Christian faith. Des, how do you apply this in the 21st century in a modern practice and hospital setting? Thank you, Mark. Well, the first thing is um, they took away my lavalier microphone and de de uh, demoted me to a handheld. <clears throat> which solves a lot of things from last night. But uh, the first thing is basically story listening is the bridge by which you come into another person's life and understand them in a different way. So you listen to the words that they say, and that reveals the thought process of their mind. You listen to the stories that they tell, and it reveals the memories of their heart. Stories are what are the memories of the heart, and it's the window to the heart. So, so I would just ask you to do this. In this part of the session, we're going to ask you to uh, work in groups of twos and threes. So find a learning partner beside you. You got it? And if you need four, you can make it or speak across four. But go ahead and decide who's going to be where. All right? Here's what I, your assignment. Mark has just told you a story. If he had told you that story in your, in your office, he told you the story of walking across there and he experiencing and realizing that he was going to the oncologist and the associated fear, how would you have responded to that story? What would be the next question that would invite a bridge into the deeper conversations of the heart? What would you have said? How would you have responded? I'll give you about three minutes. Go. First of all, what did you hear him say? What was he really saying? Deep, what was the deeper message that this story brought?
One more minute. Ten seconds. All right. What did you hear as a story, or what would you have said as the follow-up? Uh, anybody from one of your groups? What, would, what, did you, what did you hear? What would you have said? Anybody? I'll actually come off the stage and give you the opportunity with the microphone. Somebody want to help me out? Acknowledge his fear, simply just recognizing that fear. So give me a statement of how you would do that. That must be pretty scary. I remember when I, how I felt that way myself, and it was very traumatizing. What is that kind of a language? It felt very scary. I jump into the identity with the person. When I say, I felt that way myself, and I can tell you it was a life-changing moment or one that I don't want to revisit very often. How did it affect you? You now open the door to another deeper conversation. Any other, any other state? What did you hear him saying? How could this happen to me? Everything I have been without any, that was great because you heard him say 67 years. You know, not everything's wrong. How has this happened to me? So what does this imply? I don't deserve it. What's that? Did I do something bad? Is there a guilt factor behind this? Is there something that I should be feeling guilty about? What's the Lord trying to tell me? Any of those responses are great. I, <laughs> I should have seen a doctor more often. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I should have seen a doctor more often. Actually, this was uh, discovered at our at an executive physical at a celebration where uh, in. We just had another um, founder of one of the national football, uh, national basketball league uh, franchises, who we found his uh, multi-myeloma, and it's because of the panels that we run. He just had a month before a physician's uh, an exam, so he didn't think he needed to come when they told him from the team that they had to come for his physical, and so it, it was it was really that that kind of moment. Seeing a physician is a good thing, so. Uh, but as, as we talk about this kind of thing uh, of basically saying, why could this happen to me? It's very easy, to, it, it's very natural to come back and say, you know, I hear you saying, how could this happen to me? What, 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 what is this, ab I, I, I got a, a left field. Next. This is <laughs> too busy. This is an interruption. So basically, what might be your next, uh, next question around that? Why do you think God is allowing this interruption in your ministry? You're just opening the door to that, that discussion. Um, someone says to you, if you're, uh, so, yes. I also heard him say that there were seven pages of uh, results, and past the first two or three, his mind was already not listening to everything he was saying. So I heard that he must have had a lot of questions. Did the doctor say, do you have any questions? A lot of material 
any questions. Great, great. Any questions? And in some respects, many times, you might be able to actually have someone in your office who specializes in answering those questions. I've got a, so I have a person that's on my staff uh, as, as the president of our foundation. I have many medical questions. So I hired an ICU nurse. And I basically say to a person, you know, I've got a full ICU nurse who's very capable of understanding this with you and knowing it absolutely personal for it so you can ask anything you want to. Our friendship I value and I want to be able to respond, but you might have some deeper issues that you want to discuss with somebody in a more, more private way. So I've arranged for this nurse to be at your disposal. Here's her number. And if you release your information to her, she'll sit down with you and talk it through. So designating somebody on your team that has the ability to be able to do that kind of thing, so you, you might be tied up. But the acknowledgement that seven pages is right off overwhelming. So when he said seven pages, you said immediately, that feels overwhelming. And do you feel overwhelmed, and do you feel like you need some kind of navigation through this process? Or the other question, do you have any resources to help you understand this? How can you navigate that? so that you begin to explore resources as opposed to taking it all back on yourself. You begin to empower the person to explore resources. What is one of the problems of, of, of being faced with a status of patient? What's that? Become very vulnerable and immediately, you know, why don't, why don't people call themselves a patients? I, I, I'm amazed that we as providers call everybody patients. But when I go out and with Disney and with the other folks to interview, they don't call themselves patients. They, when they refer to the doctor, they will say, I'm a patient of this doctor, or I was a patient of this hospital. But other than that, they don't use the term patient to describe themselves. Why don't you think they use the term patient to describe themselves? A patient is sick. That is very insightful because here my father had a six-way bypass sitting in our hospital, ICU, three weeks in the hospital, and his doctor told me, cardiologist said, you've got to convince him he has, he has um, heart disease and he has got cardiovascular disease. I walk into my father. He's an outlier. We've spent thousands of dollars to take care of him. And he's, is, it will run through insurance. We've, <clears throat> it's bad for him. It's bad for the hospital. It's bad for the government. It's bad for everybody. And so I'm saying to him as I walk in, Dad, how are you feeling? He said, well, you know, I've had this condition for some time. I said, wait just a minute, Dad. You have got cardiovascular disease. You, you, you don't have a condition. You've got a disease. He looked at me and said, the day I let you call me a disease is the day I lose my personality for health. He said, I'm not a disease. I have a condition. He never changed that vocabulary to the day he died because he knew the power of labeling. And once, you, once you'd call a person a patient, one of the things my dad always loved to do was be a provider. That's the difference in this equation, the provider-patient. Who has the power? <laughs> the provider. I'm your, I take away your ability to provide. I put you into a, into a zone where you're going to be healed. And now during that period of time, you are an object that we do things to. We take things out of. We put things in. We prescribe. We, do it, we wake you up. We, we put you to sleep. We do it on our timetable at our time regime. So what we have to do is recognize that if we're going to co-create a story, we have to have collaboration. And basically, a hospital is built for incarceration. Am I right? Exactly. 
Look at the, look at the vocabulary. What, is they, what do they call a person who is in the jail? What do we call the people who are in a bed? Inpatient. <laughs> I rest my case. I could go through a whole litany on this, but I will not. I will not. But simply the point is, you've got to find a way to empower them because when they lose a sense of power, they lose a sense that was built in them in creation. You remember when God made humans? If you want to understand how to bring the best out in people, understand how God made them. He gave them dominion. Dominion is the power over a certain territory and a certain responsibility. Today, we would call it in the computer world a domain. It is described as the point at which all of the roots of your files reside. So it is the point at which you leverage the power of the memory and of, of your capability. So if we can give patients a domain in which they can be expert because they feel so disempowered by all this information, by all this emotion, by all this moment. So I want to ask you this. Have you, have you planned through how you're going to deliver bad news and have you scenarioed it through with your staff so they know how you're going to deliver bad news to a person? If you haven't, I invite you to do that. Think that through, how you're going to actually deliver the bad news to a person in different occasions. So I have an oncology a ph physician friend who's just fantastic at this. She's incredible. And <clears throat> one of the things that she does that I love best is the patient will inevitably, she deals with a lot of women with breast cancer. And I tell one of the stories of uh, one of the women in, in my book, uh, Eight Secrets of a Healthy 100. This woman's name is Sheila. Sheila sat down in front of the oncologist, got the bad news that she had breast cancer stage three, um, and it was bordering towards stage four, aggressive. She, her doctor said to her, you must have hope. You're not a statistic. I can give you the statistics, but you must have hope. Sheila's response was this, I'm too afraid to hope. What was she saying with that phrase? Talk it over with the person next to you and say what you would have said back. Go for it. I'll give you a couple minutes. So what would you say? Responses. What makes you say that? Opening the door. Yes? I can tell you're very concerned. Tell me more about that. What are you afraid of? Get it specific. What would be the worst thing that could happen to you at this moment? What would be the best thing that could happen to you at this moment? Tell me about your fear. So basically, um, the other question is, why are you afraid to hope? Why, why are you afraid to hope? You know what the woman said? Because I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to build things up, pray and hope and get all my network of friends rallied around me and then have my life and I just don't want to do that. She said, I'm too afraid to hope. You know, the doctor said back, love this phrase, you can borrow hope from me. You may not have hope, but you can borrow hope from me. Start with me. Now tell me who are the other people you could borrow hope from. Who are the other people in your circle? Let's sit down and begin to list how we are going to construct hope into your life, even though you're afraid to hope. So the first thing they did was said, <clears throat> redefine what your goal was. Most people say, I want to be a cancer survivor. Sheila says, I want to be a cancer thriver. 
not survive, and she took as her text, more than a conqueror. More than a conqueror. That became her text. She went on her um, mirror with the doctor's help and wrote in permanent marker these passages of texts of things that stirred her life, of it gave her hope. She began to go through her chemotherapy. She started waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning with intense fear because it was dark, she was alone. She would shake her husband and ask this question. What are you gonna do if I die? She had four boys, she was homeschooling them. What are you gonna do if I die? Tom said to her, I'm gonna take care of them. You know, I'm gonna do the best for those boys. And, and he reassured her, and finally she, they cried, of course she cried herself back to sleep. Happened three nights in a row, fourth night. He wakes up, she wakes up. What do you think he said back to her that night? What are you gonna do if you live? That's it. What are you going to do? So he said, Sheila, the real question is, what are you going to do if you live? You're not dead yet. What are we going to do while you live? The next morning, she got up, and she said, I'm going to go back to medical school and be a doctor. She'd taken pre-med. Today, she is a second-year medical school student at the University of Florida at age 46. They asked her that when she applied. They told her, you're too old at most of the medical schools. She said, not if you plan to live to 100. <laughs> Her goal is, in her statements, beautiful in her essay of why she wants to be a doctor, she wants to deliver care to women who cannot afford care for breast cancer. She will be an oncologist. She has a husband who is, is a patent lawyer, so he is very well um, provided for as far as that goes because of intellectual property uh, law practice. So, there is just an example of how you can become what I've called the stethoscope of the spirit. Let me explain it to you. Healing the whole person we've talked about is really the genius of what we have as Christian healers. And when Florida Hospital does it right, when we get it right, we actually sit at this intersect between the, the spirit, the body, and the mind. And what you find in scripture is when God breathes into Adam, his body, his spirit, his mind are ignited and becomes fully alive. And the word soul, for me, my translation is fully alive. It is what Jesus was referring to when he said that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So there's different qualities of air that you breathe. You can live by respiration, but you thrive by inspiration. You were designed for inspiration. The tragedy of what happens in the human experience is that sin always attacks your inspiration to seek to, dis to take, take away your worth and diminish your vitality. It happened to the disciples at the time of the resurrection. Where did Jesus find them that evening at the time of the resurrection? Sunday evening, locked in the upper room, right? What, did he, what was his first act upon them? He breathed upon them. What was his act to bring humans to life? He breathed into Adam, and he became a living soul. He breathed the second wind of salvation into the hearts of these people so that they could become a living soul. Basically, that is what you have the opportunity to do when you heal the whole person, is that you have the opportunity to take and provide physical cure or physical healing for the moment, you have the opportunity to understand and engage the mind, and you have the opportunity to inspire the spirit, and that is the inspiration process. <clears throat> Just think of this. Many, many times you'll, you'll be telling patients that they have to have a breathing exercise, right? Some breathing exercise or something you have to do 
to make sure that you breathe properly, whether you're a surgeon getting them back to where they're uh, able to function and get out of the hospital, whether you're dealing with somebody with COPD, whether you're dealing with somebody who's elderly and experiencing some respiratory issue, you've, you're often talking about breathing. In fact, breathing is a great conversation because it's God's conversation, and the Holy Spirit is all about breathing. So this is, a, this is a great opportunity to actually take what would be a very normal, mundane function of an HMO requirement that you check, check off, that I taught breathing, or I asked them about their breath, or I asked them about smoking. You check it off, and you take the mundane and begin to turn it towards the divine. And ask, how could I take any of those mundane questions and begin to cause them to reach a different point. And is there a place at which my staff might help me do that so that it's not all on me to do that kind of work? And how can I, how can I take and craft those moments? So one of the things that I've taught people in breathing, I learned it when I had ruptured disc in my back, I couldn't move, but I learned to have my prayer process around a breathing exercise because that's the one thing I could do. And uh, thank the Lord, I didn't have to have surgery, but I did have to strengthen my core to be able to get back. Someday I'll probably have to have surgery, but I didn't have to have it right now. So what I learned, and I still do it every morning, is that I have my prayer process in the breathing exercises all at the same time. It's a way to simply take the common exercise that you would give people and actually show them a way to live differently. Another way is to give them a harmonica and tell them to play because it's the same as pursed lip breathing and they can learn to play uh, their favorite hymn. But basically you have different ways of turning your practice into a spiritual journey for people that goes into whole person healing. Last night we talked about the three dimensions that the folks at Disney defined when they looked at, when they answered the question, when Florida Hospital heals people holistically, what happens when we really do it right? And they said you touch the, the, the body the mind and the spirit, and I explained that last night, so we will not review that. But here's one of the things I wanted to point out to you, how important the mental portion is on communication. Communication is to my mind what prayer is to my spirit. You believe that? It, I need to know the plan. I need to understand where we are in the journey. I don't expect you to know everything I need answer, but I need answers. Changes are okay if they're explained. Silence destroys trust. So what happens is this whole ability to communicate is often an exercise in the mind and the discussion. These opportunities with the seven pages is a great opportunity to communicate. Hey, I've thought about what's going to happen in an overwhelming situation where information is coming at you. How are you going to process it? How are you going to get that help? Here's some things we've done in our practice to be able to provide that. Here's the situation. The science of medicine has been remarkably advanced through an increase of technologies for diagnosis and treatment. These advances provide the clinicians with objective and comparative information for care planning. However, most of these tools are focused on the physical. A few cognitive and, and psychological tests probe the mind and emotions, but there are virtually no technologies for the spirit. You can't image the spirit, right? The day that they have an MRI that will actually image love or hate or violence, uh, that's a day that we have, uh, that, that basically we won't talk about some of this thing. I don't know that that will ever come. For actually, that is the part of life that is the mystery aspect. And basically what, you can, what I would say is the statement of opportunity under this situation, because there is an absence of objective technologies for treating the spirit of the patient, the dimension of care remains an art, yet it is key difference in our, is a key difference in our practice. Years ago, they used to call the doctor's building the medical, remember what it called? Medical arts building. 
Anybody remember that back that far? It was the medical arts building. Why? The hospital was the science. The doctor's office was the art. The art is the process of interacting with the mind and the spirit. Do you remember from the research last night, what percentage of the patient's whole journey is wrapped up in the mental? 80%, 80%. And 80% of their memory is wrapped up there. Spiritual care planning is an area of great opportunity. You are called to be the stethoscope of the spirit. So you are an instrument by which God uses to hear the spirit. And can you hear the language of the spirit as the people begin to share their stories? How do we enhance the ability of our caregivers to practice whole person healing? Well, I want to, I want to show you where that starts on a spiritual level. This is the number one patient experience driver. And uh, I didn't write this, the Disney team wrote this. Human connection and compassion, overwhelmingly reported as the most important, not medicine, technology, or environment. Medical outcome is separate and distinct from the hospital experience in the mind of the patient. This weekend, we will sign an agreement with a woman who lost her husband in our hospital. And she wants to give $2 million to develop a transplant house for patients who need kind of support. Her memory is not the memory of that loss. It's the memory she had three extra years with her husband, and he was able to see their granddaughters, and he was able to do some things that they had hoped to do. So the end of life is not so much the issue. The bad news is not so much the issue. It is the way you create meaning that is the issue. If there is no meaning, then individuals feel doubly lost. They feel lost in the in the in the body, they feel lost in the mind, and they feel vacant in the spirit, and that caused what we call in Florida sinkholes. And when you have sinkholes of the spirit, it means that the water of life is not floating between beneath the, 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 the structure of the, that is above. And as a result, things dry up and you have a sinkhole. So what happens here is there's a high standard of medical care and treatment is a given. It's the cost of doing business. They expect us to be good. They expect us not, you know, if we walk in and say we don't kill many people, they just say, well, so what's so great about that? That's what you're supposed to do. And then patients want to, to recognize their humanity as all times, as Mark had said earlier, at the woman at the well, in all encounters by everyone. The, this is the part that was the hardest for our doctors to hear. The, doctors, the doctor is often viewed as a commodity alongside medical technology and procedures. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they made that statement? It's loss of the personal. How have we allowed ourselves as a profession to be viewed as a commodity? How did that journey happen? If you want to be commoditized, do what computers can do. If you think you can beat them, good luck. If you want to be differentiated, do what only humans can do. You will have an ongoing significant differentiation that will have value over time above and beyond technology. Brick and mortar equipment and capital resources are available through all kinds of different companies and for-profit hospitals. But the spiritual and mental care of the individual is where God has called us to be able to have excellence. Now, it doesn't mean that we have poor quality on the other side. It means that we have excellence that goes beyond the physical and embraces the whole person that we might inspire people, then they may become living souls. So this is what they said is the caregiver circle in the hospital. It's made up of the patient, 
the nurse, and the family member. The doctor can get in the circle because most of the patients, they want the doctor in. They just don't feel like the doctor wants in. And they communicate that by the fact that they're always in a hurry. They're always rushing, and they're rushing in and rushing out. And as a result, the time spent, and we have this range from 8 to 14 minutes of time. I'm going to show you a little a bit about how to, to cope with that because there is a whole plethora of time that people are not letting patients in to understand. And if we let them understand it, it will be a remarkable difference. So here's the difference between the whole area of science and art. Science is objective, art is, I mean, yeah, science is objective, art is subjective. The disease-specific science focuses on the disease-specific. Art focuses on the individual uniqueness. A caregiver-driven is the science side. It co-created is the art side, where you work together back and forth with the interaction. Science is protocol practice. Art is permission-based. One of the great things that I learned in witness training was always let pe always ask people if they where they want you to, you to go next. Would you like me to talk to you about that? Would you like for me to pray for you about that? Would you like to understand that deeper? So that there is a kind of a, a code that we have adopted, which is invite all, force none. Make sense? Invite all, force none. And the way you invite is by questions. The Lord was just fantastic at questions. Jesus was incredible at questions. Somehow, preachers have been come, become incredible at statements. God is in, and, and really, Jesus opens people's minds up and opens their hearts up with questions. So we have the opportunity to invite them with questions, and that's the permission side. <clears throat> in science, it's an intervention. In art, it's an interaction. In science, it's most commoditized. In art, it's most customized. So those are the differences between where you can try to put your emphasis. I want you to be scientifically excellent, but I want to tell you, you'll be differentiated by the fact that you're mentally and spiritually in tune with the patient. And if we go back to the three dimensions of story, now the question is, how do we set the stage for this encounter in your practice? So we've talked about the interaction. I want to talk about the plot next. So there's three dimensions of story, the interaction, the plot, and the stage. So let's take a look at the, at the plot. We're not going to take time to look at that video. So let me go to this. <clears throat> we found that there were five plots that people come to the hospital with. My guess is there are uh, maybe a similar number in your practice. You need to look at your practice. What are the five, what are the areas that people come? What are the different plots that they come with? So the first one is celebration. We're coming to have a baby. It's a great deal. We're going to have a baby. There's high expectation, and that's why there's such a deep crash when their baby is is born compromised or is threat, life threatened. Tonight I will tell a story for our leadership uh, group with uh, a live feed from the hospital's uh, NICU unit of a young woman who was uh, raped. We will not tell that part of the story, but she was raped and she became pregnant and she had no one, no family here, nothing here. Went into the doctor and realized that the baby was having some serious issues and went to the beach and thought, should I keep this baby? She said she is not a spiritual person, has not had a lot of spiritual background at all. But she said on the beach, I felt God impressing me that I should keep the baby. Came into our neo neonatologist and found out the baby was highly compromised from a cardiovascular issue. So spiking great arrhythmias and not being able to control those, she was immediately brought into the care of the neonatology group. <clears throat> so 
She came and went through the experience of the baby being born. Frankly, the baby should have died. Frankly, the, it was miraculous that he's lived. They flew him to the hospital um, in Tampa. That's our partner that has specialty services in certain uh, subspecialty open art procedures. <clears throat> she said, I felt the clinical at that place. They were very good clinically. She said, they didn't feel like family, and I didn't feel God there. And I asked that he be transferred back as soon as they finished. Transferred him back. The day that I interviewed her two weeks ago, she had just <clears throat> seen his scar for the first time. And if you see the scar on a little baby for one of these procedures of, of, of cracking the chest, it is just, you realize how much pain that child has gone through. And she was weeping when we began to talk. And she said, I, I looked at that scar and I realized how much pain he got through. She said, I couldn't even come and talk to you, so I went and took a shower. And She was living in the hospital, so she took a shower and she came back. And she said, then in the shower, I realized they had to take him early in me, and I have a C-section scar that's horizontal. He has a heart, open chest scar that is vertical. There is meaning and pain. Together, they are the cross. And those two come together to form a cross. And here's a young woman who you say, she doesn't have her family with her. She has no husband to, to raise this child. She said, you are my family, you are my church, you are my sanctuary, and you are my healers. And we say, praise the Lord, that we would have that distinct opportunity. Tragedy that the society has, has devolved to a place in which we find ourselves, 40% of the children live in homes where the woman is the this, is this single caregiver and, and leading breadwinner. So you have this kind of thing happening, and yet what happens in those moments is it's important that we stand beside them. And tonight, she will talk about that. We will end with the whole group singing a lullaby, Jesus loves you to the boy, and our chaplain praying a prayer over them so we have a, so we have a bedtime routine. So um, the next one is emergency. It's a surprise. It's a trauma. It suddenly hit me, and it's unexpected. The third plot is renewal. This will get me back to health. I'm gonna have a knee replaced. I'm gonna get back to where I was. The fourth one is maintenance. I'm just gonna stop the sliding. All I wanna do is just have a few more good years. I wanna stop the sliding. I know I'm getting this point in my life, but I wanna stop the sliding. And the final one is legacy. This is approaching the end. It's very easy. We can teach this to our transporters because the transporters know when, they're, when, they're, when the patient is assigned to a floor. They know whether they came through emergency, they know what floor they're going to, and they know the doctor that is the admitting doctor. And by knowing what floor they're going to, they can probably guess which, which plot they're in or where they are. But with a few easy questions, they can find out as they're traveling down the hallway something deeper than just simply telling them, I'm gonna take you to this floor. They now can go deeper into their heart. They can become a comfort giver. And that's something that, as you look at your practice, my question is, what are the plots that people come in with into your practice? Because as you understand their plot, you, you suddenly can guess where they are, and it almost feels to them as if you've been reading their mind. As if you've ever heard someone as a patient say, what you said was meant exactly for me. That's what, they're that's what I'm talking about. The ability to read into the heart of the individual. And it unlocks all kinds of opportunities. So 
Here's what we found that happens. You're constructing a drama in your practice. We're constructing a drama in the hospital, albeit a hospital drama is much more intense, perhaps, but the drama is still, you have an episode of that drama that's key, so that we found there's three acts in this drama, and my guess is those three acts work in your practice. So here they are grafted out. Act one is the point at which there, the stress begins, and you'll see it peaking, and that peak on act one where, it's, where the stress is going up here on that peak is the point at which the person is told by the doctor they're going to be admitted. Their stress goes way up. Act one is the point from which you're told you're going to be admitted until the time you get into your room. That's act one. I told you that there are 16 different departments, 26 different individuals that play in this act. Uh, I, I will be leaving the slides with Becca so you'll be able to have them, and we will be leaving a book for you uh, on the patient experience uh, that's a monograph that'll have some of this information in it as well. So what happens in Act 1, our goal is to build trust. Take away fear, build trust. Why do we do that? I'll show you in just a little bit why, where we got this model from. Why we the second act, Act 2, is from the time a person is in the, in the room and the nurse starts admitting them to the floor and the H&P and so forth that's associated with getting them into the floor through their treatment process to the point at which they think they're going to be ready to go home. So they start anticipating going home. That's Act 2. We call that the treatment act. And the goal of that act is to help people feel like they belong, they're part of our family that they belong to this process, that they're interacting with us and part of the family. And then there's Act 3. Act 3 is the point at which people uh, begin to think, I'm going to be discharged. And we thought that Act 3 would end with discharge. But people were really anxious at discharge. They say, I've had all this support around me, and now you send me home, and I don't know if I'm going to have the support, and I don't know who's going to take care of me, and I don't know what's going to happen here, plus you give me all these things I've got to buy, and, if, and the drugstore I've got to go to, and the equipment I've got to find, and all this has to come together in some place. How is this going to happen? And their anxiety actually goes up. There's two things that provoke their anxiety. In Act 2, their anxiety is provoked if the care plan changes. We say, whoops, we hit something. You're not going to get out as quickly. Things didn't go exactly like we had planned for them in surgery. You had this complication and so forth. If you don't explain that, anxiety goes up, frustration goes up. If you explain that, you can drop that anxiety, and that's where you see the dotted lines of explanation. Now, when you go into the next area of Act 3, of the, the goal there is to build hope. And the way, where the people want you is they want you to be with them all the way to recovery, not just to discharge. If you're there at discharge, then they feel kind of resentful of the system that they dropped them, and you're on your own. So they want to plan all the way to recovery. So one of the things we're working with right now is planning all the way to recovery so that we can actually uh, provide people with the best process of getting all the way to the recovery. That's also going to help not to have readmissions. And we're working on a concept of health warranties, which your car is warranted, your iPad is guaranteed. What's the difference? You can't do anything to help your iPad. I mean, I can't, at least. Uh, my car, I have to bring it in and do my part to bring it in and have it serviced and so forth, and that's why it has a warranty, because I have to do something. You have to. So in health, what we do healing is often to you a warranty process. So what if we said, 
What? We have the best way to get you back with a, with a knee surgery or knee replacement. We've planned this all the way as if we were treating you as a world-class athlete so that we can get you with the best ideas of how to recover in your home and on back, and we'll shorten that recovery time, and we'll work with you throughout the process. So we're working on some of those kinds of ideas. So um, as, we, as we take a look at the next item, within these acts, we have to understand the role. So if we had time, I would ask you to figure out what are the acts in your office? In fact, I'll start you with that in just a little bit. Where does Act 1 begin? Where does it begin in your office? What's that? T telephone. Appointment. Ah, referral. Website. Uh, yellow pages. These are where the identity of your, and, and word of mouth, stories that people tell. Your brand is really the stories that people tell about you, right? Isn't that your brand? So your brand is the stories. So act one begins with the stories about you. So I, there's, there's a guy that we refer a lot of people to. And when we refer him to, because he's just top drawer clinically, we say, you know, go to this doctor. This is one I'd go to. He's a little bit rough, but... Uh, <laughs> But he's really good. <laughs> so put up with the roughness, would you? Because the guy really knows what he's doing. So they go in with an expectation because there's already stories that accompany that, little brand, that, that brand of his referral process. So here we have the opportunity now to look at how the, the plot expresses itself in the roles that people play. So the, who is the star? The patient views them. If you treat them as the star, they're center stage. They actually, the villain is the disease or the problem, and the heroes are the caregivers. So you're a hero. You know, one of the things we have not really captured, too, in our, patient, in our, in our identification of patient satisfaction is the way we introduce nurses. If nurses are heroes, why don't we introduce them like heroes? Disney would never let Snow White walk onto the stage without a dramatic introduction and blowing and trumpets and all. And Snow White's just putting on a uniform. I mean, putting on an outfit back and backstage. She could be anybody. But they will always bring them on with some kind of introduction of importance. Why? Because it says to the individuals, hey, this is a great event. We made it just for you. It's very important. If you can bring your nurses and your folks into an understanding that as they move into the room, they are actually entering into a drama. And as they enter into that drama, they most accelerate that drama when they give that drama their best attention and their full for force of their total mind, body, and spirit. So I would suggest you get a practice that just before you enter the room, you take a moment beside that room to breathe a prayer. And then as you enter the room, enter with full attention. So the question is, how do you enter? What is your entry procedure? We'll talk, we won't have time to talk about that. Oh, we're through. I'm sorry. I just looked at the time. Uh, can I give you, uh, I'll give you one final question, one, one other question. What is your story? It's very important if we're going to make stories come together for you to express your story in all that you do and for your employees to do that. So your story is partially about your credentials. But most people expect to see that credentials. Your story is really the answer to some of these questions. What caused you to choose to be a caregiver? What is your vision for health and healing? How have you organized your practice to achieve this vision? And what is your commitment to each patient? And what is your design day?
Don't have time to go through that with you, but if we had time, that would be a worthwhile workshop. Let me go back to this and close. Those three are model, our model for trust, belonging, and hope, which we say are the three things that we try to bring to bring whole person care. Where did that come from? It came from the seventh day of the creation week. So when God created the Sabbath, he embedded it with three things. And the power of these three things is, exempl is exemplified and amplified in the Hebrew because in the Sabbath commandment, I mean, in the Sabbath verse of Genesis 2, it is made up of 35 words, 35, a derivative of sevens, 35 words, three phrases, three phrases of seven words each. Those three phrases actually punctuate three core words and concepts. Rest, bless, what's the third one? Sanctify. Rest, bless, sanctify. We translated those into trust, belonging, and hope. Those three things are so powerful that when Satan attacked this world with sin and suffering and death for the first six days of creation, he focused on sin, suffering, and death. But the seventh day, he attacked it with his greatest enemies of the spirit. He attacked it, trust or rest with fear, and they hid. He attacked blessing with shame, and they covered themselves. He attacked uh, the sanctification with blame, and they fractured their unity. Set apart to grow together, they were now at odds with each other. And as a result, we are rebuilding the spirit through the actual original plan because when God did his creation story, when he built the world, he, he was into quality. He did it right the first time. And so because he did it right the first time, if we study how he did it, we can actually use that to construct a superior way of reconnecting an individual, mind, body, and spirit, and experiencing total health and complete healing by re-inspiring people to be born anew. And despite their journey, despite where they are, they can look up. So tonight, the young woman that I will be interviewing, her name is Katrina, said to me, I don't know if he will live or how long he will live. But this I know, pain will have purpose, for it did on the cross. If you can gift your patients with a perspective that makes pain purposeful, you are a healer for eternity. May God bless you with that healing touch. But let's turn our attention to Joe. Joe, um, tell us your specialty. I'm a gastroenterologist in Greenville, Tennessee. What does a gastroenterologist do for lay people like me? Well, you probably think of me as the type of person you have to go to when you turn 50 and have to have a colonoscopy. Um, you have integrated into your care some spiritual modalities. Um, how have you done that? You know, medicine finally became fun for me. I started practicing in a probably fairly traditional way where people come in with complaints, and I see if we can do something about the complaints and get them through the door, in and out. And that was really not fun, because pretty soon they'd come back, they'd be on a sack load of medications, and I'm going, I haven't helped them, I made them worse. And you know, I was aware of our information on health from the Spirit of Prophecy, but I thought, you know, 
That's my opinion. And then I became aware that we actually have the scientific studies to back up everything that we preach. In fact, I'll go so far as to say now I filter everything through that. And if it doesn't match, I know they haven't quite gotten it right. As one person said, if you have the Bible, you have truth. If you don't have the Bible, then you do scientific studies and you start approaching it. And so what I do is I just, when patients come in to build on what they've said, I really try to start out, I listen to them. I try to say, I'm listening to you. Tell me what's going on. I mean, listen. I've discovered I look a lot smarter when I listen to people. Like I tell my patients, what I need to remember that is when I go back home. I still need to remember that. I look a lot smarter when I listen to people. So basically what I do is I'm listening to people, and then I basically tell them, now, I'm a gastroenterologist, so we're dealing with digestive tract. And what happens is I tell them, you know, what we eat is once we swallow, whether it tastes, whatever it tasted like or smelled or looked like or cost, to our body at least, once we swallow, it's our fuel. And if you put the wrong fuel in, it's like if you have a car that runs on premium and you put regular in, it's not going to work well. Or if it runs on diesel and you put gas in. I had one patient tell me I did that. He said it burned the thing up. He said, so I tell them, you know, it really makes a difference. So the next thing I tell them is, you know, what you have to do is you want to know what do you eat. And I said, I struggled that for a long time, and I finally came up with a simple concept. The simple concept is the way we know if a food's good for you is whatever food has the most nutrition and the fewest things that are harmful to you, that's what's best for you. So now I tell them we know what that is. The most nutritious foods on the planet are greens and vegetables, fruits, beans, whole grains, nuts and seeds. I tell them, unless you take those very foods that grew from the ground and put them through a factory. Once they come out the other end, they're good for the people that own the factory. They're just not as good for you. <laughs> and equally important, if you take those foods and you send them through an animal. The animal processes them, and then whatever toxins the animal got exposed to or whatever, you're not getting as good a nutrition. You're losing it. Or, so if you, take, if you eat that animal, or if the animal excreted it, that's where the dairy or the eggs, not as good, you're losing nutrition. So I say it's very simple. You look at a food. If, it's, if it grew from the ground, very good. If it went through a factory, not as good. If it went through an animal, not as good. I'm getting to answer your question, believe it or not. <laughs> what page are you on? <laughs> One. No, just kidding. <laughs> but basically, then I tell them, now let me tell you what's most persuasive to me to go along with this. And that's where I transition to the spiritual. I said, but I have to, can I, I then tell them, I can give you a scientific basis for everything I've told you, but let me tell you what's most persuasive for me to do this. Can I do that? And I ask them permission. And what they'll say to me is, Okay, most of the time. If they don't, that's fine. But I say, what's most persuasive for me is have to, I tell you where I come from. I believe we have a God who created us and revealed himself through his word, the Bible. Okay, okay. I live in East Tennessee, and most people go along with that. And I say, well, think about it. When God made our first parents, Adam and Eve, he put them in the perfect ideal location, the Garden of Eden. And if you think about it, he... Read the first two chapters of Genesis, specifically Genesis 129, he tells us what he gave him to eat. 
It was fruits, grains, nuts, seeds, and the tree of life. But when man sinned, God put him out of the Garden of Eden, no longer had access to the tree of life. He's saying, but now you're going to eat the plant of the field. He's telling them, you know, curse be the ground for your sake, you're going to die, um, you're going to have pain with your children, but he also says you're going to eat the plant of the field. And he said, that's the greens, the vegetables, basically the greens and vegetables. That's when that was added to the diet. I said, but here's the problem. In those days, people were living 900 plus years on that diet. They couldn't have the most nutritious thing, the tree of life, but God gave them the second most nutritious, which is the greens and vegetables. But think about it. If you live over 900 years and you reject God, you have a long time to get really evil. It's kind of if Hitler would live 900 years, a bad idea. So that's why the flood came. And after the flood, God's going, you know, we need a short man's lifespan. And one of the ways... God did was it wasn't the only way, but God said, you know, that's when God first gave man permission to start eating animals and animal products, and guess what? It worked. People don't live 900 years anymore, do they? And they say, yeah, they don't. I say, now, but fast forward, the earth made new, there'll be no more death nor dying. So we're back to eating God's original diet. So it's ideal diet before, it's ideal diet for the future. I say, the closer you get to eating that way, the closer you get to eating the way we're designed to eat. You're basically following the manufacturer's handbook. And that's when I tell them, I'm embarrassed to say how long it took me to figure this one out. You know, I went through college and med school and residency and fellowship and all my boards, but I finally tumbled to this idea. He's smarter than I am. So when I follow what he says, it works. And then I tell them, and the whole point of this isn't just so we can have an extra few years of healthy life here on the planet. The point of it is so that you can actually have a clear mind, have a relationship with this being who loves us so much, he's willing to die to come down and allow us to have eternal life and hang out for eternity and do all the cool things with him. And then we have that discussion. So that's a way I use with most of my patients. At the end, I frequently ask them, may I pray with you? Don't you find that that takes more time than you have, and doesn't that overcrowd your waiting room? Because what you've just said, probably in an explanation, takes more than three minutes. You know, it's interesting how cool God is. Not everyone is going to be open to that. And you're not going to be talking about that to everyone. But generally, when someone is interested, it's amazing how the next patient didn't show up or something, and it still works out. It's amazing how that works. I've decided, you know, if you let God be in charge of the schedule, he managed to work it out. It's really cool how that works. This was helpful, wasn't it? I want to pray for Dr. Kretschmeyer just now. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for godly physicians who are here. Thank you for Dr. Kretschmeyer, whose heart has a great burden to share tactfully, lovingly, eternal principles in his office. I pray that this coming week, as he goes back to his office, that there would be divine appointments and divine opportunities for him to share even more. In Christ's name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.